Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St Albans Five Docs Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. So that was easy enough, that reading, wasn't it? So we can sort of leave it there, sit down. So here's a ridiculous parable. Imagine a local art gallery. The closest one to here is Arterial Gallery in Roselle. That particular gallery, it's a gallery is nothing special. From the outside, it looks like a, an early 20th century home. But one day, this particular art gallery is gifted with an artwork of immense value. Let's just say, for the sake of the parable, that it's the original The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci, even though that's a, a mural painting. But it's huge. This, this, the Last Supper is five metres high, nine metres across. You can imagine that the gallery's committee of management is overcome with gratitude and astonishment because of the gift. They're, they're so overcome that they hadn't yet worked out that there'd be a bit of a problem. After having been meticulously transported from Milan, Italy, the artwork arrives at the art gallery and the problem is apparent. It can't even fit into the building, let alone find a home on one of its walls. So what do they do? Do they send the, the, the artwork back? Do they, do they offer the artwork to a different gallery or do they make space for the masterpiece in their own gallery? Well, there's no way they're going to give it up, so they choose the latter option. They redesign the gallery to feature the masterpiece. Somehow they get council approval, which is no small feat in the Inner West Council area. They get council approval to demolish the art gallery and start again with smaller peripheral rooms around a surprisingly vast centre room with carefully designed lighting to feature that painting. So that's the parable. And here's the moment Jesus huddles the disciples and tells them what the parable actually is about. The art gallery is our lives. And the redesign is what happens when Jesus, the master, comes in. Because as Paul said previously in the letter, Christ is in us. He's the hope of glory. Last week's passage was all about what we need to demolish in our lives because of Jesus, that he is in us and we are in him. We need to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. We need to demolish those things and we need to redesign our lives around Christ. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We redesign, we reorder our lives because the creator, the reconciler, the redeemer has made a home in our lives and that changes everything. 3.17, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Jesus is the living Lord at the centre of our lives, and the rest of our lives are reordered, redesigned around him, which is one way to describe what the Christian life is about. Reordering our loves, our wills, our intentions, our actions and decisions around Jesus. And this reordering doesn't just happen in our lives together. That was last week. It changes how we live together. It also happens, it revolutionises the three social spheres that were most significant in the ancient world. 
marriage, family, and slavery. And because Jesus is at the centre of our lives, it changes the shape of these relationships for us. So you probably noticed that it's a challenging passage, submission, parenting, and slavery all packed in, in just a few verses. And so I've tried to approach this passage like I approach all difficult passages like it. If I can't see how this is good news for us and the world, I assume I haven't really understood the passage yet. That's why I've approached this passage. So Jesus changes the shape of marriage. Are you ready? Let's jump in. Verse 18. What's the page number? 958, if you want to look in your Bibles. Verse 18. Verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. So we've got to start with the word submit. It's controversial to our modern Western ears, but it wouldn't have been controversial to the original context, in the original context. In fact, in each of the three relational spheres to which Paul applies the lordship of Christ in this passage, marriage, the family, and slavery, he begins with the statement that in his time and place was completely uncontroversial. He begins with that uncontroversial statement in their time and then revolutionizes the relationship. And the statement that was uncontroversial at the time was, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. But what does it mean to be subject? This verse has been widely used and abused, and Christians often say dumb things about it. But here's the first and most important thing to notice about these commands here, verse 18. The point isn't to clearly define different specific roles in marriage for the wife and the husband. That's not the point of this passage, to to specifically define different roles. And that's clear because Paul doesn't actually tell us what the content of being subject is. He doesn't give any instructions as to what it actually looks like in practice. He's interested, he's much more interested in something else, something broader than defining roles and responsibilities, and it's much deeper. He wants to show how the marriage relationship is revolutionized by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing here. When Paul says to the wife, be subject, a willing self-subjection is in view. A willing self-subjection is in view. In the Greek, it's a middle passive verb, which just means that the wife is doing something to herself. The husband isn't subjecting her. The wife subjects herself willingly. But what does that mean? What does it mean for the wife to subject herself willingly? The word subject has to do with order. The wife's life is to be ordered toward her husband, that is, to his good and well-being. Which is to say, the command is about the wife's disposition toward her husband rather than about specific actions. This disposition will certainly result in or lead to specific actions, but they're not spelled out. And notice that Paul says, be subject as is fitting in the Lord. The Christ relationship is the primary relationship and it spills over and changes the shape of marriage. The wife chooses to live for her husband 
willingly, not because of the husband's authority, which would have been assumed in the day. The wife chooses to live for her husband, not because of his authority, but because she lives for Christ. Moving on to verse 19. And to the word that would have been controversial in Paul's time. And, And the fact that these verses are controversial to us in the opposite way that they were controversial to the first hearers is in part because this text has made a massive difference to the world in, 2000, in the last 2,000 years. Verse 19, Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. So one, one person I know has paraphrased verses 18 and 19, maybe a little too sharply, but you'll remember it, no doubt. She says... Wives, don't bitch about your husbands. Husbands, pull your finger out and be present and useful. That's her way of understanding these two verses. And whether or not they're accurate, the word to all husbands is this. Your responsibility is the flourishing and growth and godliness of your wife. Not you first, but your wife first. The focus of your attention and effort is on her physical, spiritual, psychological, and emotional well-being. And it's this love that the wife is to submit to. In other words, wives are not being asked to submit and be vulnerable without the safety of this kind of love. Which leads me to a really important qualification. I think there's a reason why this morning's passage is broken up into three couplets. Three couplets. One part addressed to one party in the relationship and the other addressed to the other party in the relationship. There's a mutuality to each of the relationships. A mutuality. And marriage in particular is like a dance. If one person stridently fails to dance their part, it makes it impossible to keep dancing. Particularly when the husband instead of working towards his wife's physical, spiritual, psychological, and emotional well-being, eats away at it drastically or slowly over time, verse 18 doesn't apply because verse 19 has been abandoned. It's a dance. So let me make this really clear. Self-submission does not require the wife to put up with any abuse or stay in any unsafe place. Precisely because the wife's submission is an overflow of their submission to Christ, not the husband's authority, precisely because of that, there will be times when obedience to Christ will mean stepping out from the relationship with your husband. When self-submission is unfitting in the Lord because it, it can't be done with thankfulness. And if you find yourself in a situation nearing anything like this, Please talk to myself or Megan or someone within this congregation who you know well or someone outside this congregation whom you trust. But do you see how ordering or redesigning a marriage around Christ is good news? In a culture that tends to assume that marriage is about self-fulfillment, Paul wants us to find our fullness, our fulfillment in Jesus. And when we do that, fullness flows over into other relationships and begins to reorder those relationships for the better. So in marriage, serving Christ means serving each other. However the wife's 
submission, the wife's submission, and the husband's love overflows in practice, works itself out in practice, the result will basically be the same. Both the wife and the husband aim towards lifting up the other person. The other person's well-being is the focus. And when Jesus is at the centre and your marriage is redesigned around him, the result will be a, a relationship of beautiful and radical reciprocity. That's the main point of this text. There's no practical guidelines provided, such as the husband should be the tie-breaker decision-maker or that the husband should be the breadwinner because all of that is secondary and needs to be worked out together. Each person being concerned with the other person's concerns. Mutuality. And so if in your marriage you decide and agree that the husband will make uh, the final decisions or whatever, that, or whatever you decide, that's fine. But we need to own that as a decision you've made together and don't pretend that's a clear command of Scripture for all marriages. So for Arian and I, I don't think we've really worked what submission and love looks at looks like in practice. As a husband, it's never being clearly on me to make the final tie-breaking decisions. Arian works nearly as much as me in, in paid employment and earns more than I do, and she's better with finances than me, though I'm working on that. But the main point is we seek to serve and honour each other. We're on each other's team, is one way to put it. And we take the view that our marriage should look different to other non-Christian marriages, but not because it's traditional or not because it's modern, but because we're trying to lift up Christ, show that he's at the centre of our relationship in the way that we speak about, speak to, and act towards each other. So that's um, the first point. Jesus changes the shape of marriage. Second point, Jesus changes the shape of the family. So verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this is your acceptable duty in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, or they may lose heart. In our context, it's hard to see how embryonically revolutionary, that's my phrase, these couplets are. The children are addressed before the fathers, and the children aren't simply family property, which would have been the case in Roman times. But they themselves are assumed to have a living and active faith. The children are many Christians who can themselves, as it says, please the Lord. Which, um, which is a good reason, by the way, to baptise infants. They're believers too, but maybe that's a talk for another time. Children are called to obey their parents in everything because it's assumed parents know a thing or two about life. And it's a principle relevant to adult children too, even Though the mode of obedience changes as you grow, we will always benefit from the wisdom of our parents. And so we shouldn't neglect their wisdom, even though we sift it through our growing understanding, wisdom, and maturity. And fathers and mothers too, it says, do not provoke, or another way of putting that, do not embitter your children. This has on view treating kids in such a way that plants in them a growing desire to rebel. This might be caused by parenting that has unrealistic expectations or parenting that fails to give 
a child freedom to grow into themselves because parents have their own preconceived molds. Or it could be disciplining the kids so harshly that the child loses sight of the parent's love. Paul recognises that the parent-child relationship is one of massive power imbalance and that it's a reasonably fragile thing. And many of us know that from experience, real hurts that linger from a broken parent-child relationship. And Paul says to the parents in particular, be careful. So that's all I'm going to say here. But because parenting is something that we rarely talk about in church, even though it's so important, in just a few moments' time, we're going to hear an interview with Andrew and Katrina, who are parents further down the track than me, and what they've learned about raising kids in the Lord. But prefacing that video, even if parents do a textbook job at raising kids in the Lord, we can't guarantee that our children will continue in the faith. There are Christian parents who are brilliant at raising the kids in the Lord and their kids decide to have nothing to do with Jesus. And there are Christian parents who are terrible at raising the kids in the Lord, but their kids end up having a deep faith in Jesus. So we can't guarantee that our kids will grow up into an adult faith as Christians. Though maybe it's fair to say, even though there's no straight line between what we do and whether our kids continue in the Lord, there might be a a dotted and and a wiggly line. In in other words, there might be some connection. There's there's some connection. So Jesus changes the shape of the family and Jesus changes the shape of slavery. Maybe less relevant to us, but we'll see. Verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, not with a slavery performed merely for looks to please people, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever task you must do, work as if your soul depends on it, as for the Lord and not for humans, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serve the Lord Christ. Notice again that Paul not only addresses the slave before the master, but also he starts with the uncontroversial. Slaves, obey your masters in everything. Though he doesn't start with the uncontroversial in order to leave the social relationship unchanged. As I said, each couplet is embryonically revolutionary. Each couplet doesn't simply deconstruct the social relationship of which it speaks, marriage, family, slavery, because at least with slavery, the ancient world would have collapsed in a heap if all the slaves at once had just decided to put down their tools. But Paul plants a seed that will inevitably mean the end of slavery. So slaves like children in the previous couplet, they live first and foremost with respect to the Lord. He says, work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. He says, work wholeheartedly for the Lord and not for humans. In other words, slaves aren't property of their earthly masters. They're servants of the living Lord Jesus. And so in the verses, they receive what only non-slaves might expect, a reward, an inheritance. Why? Why do they receive the inheritance? It's as if Paul's wanting to drum this into the hearers of the letter. They serve first the Lord Jesus, not their masters. Slaves work in relation to Jesus. And their masters, it says in the passage, have a master in heaven. 4 verse 1, masters treat your slaves justly and fairly, for you know that you have a master in heaven. In other words, masters are on the same level as the slave. They both serve, they both have a master in heaven, and so they both serve the Lord Jesus. Do you see? 
These couplets are planting a seed for revolution. Author Rebecca McLaughlin, in in her book that's on the the back shelf there for people to take, uh, she writes this. Passages like this one argue against slavery by cutting the legs from under it. Jesus inhabited the slave role. Paul calls himself a slave of Christ. He insists that the slave and free are equal in Christ, with no room for superiority, exploitation or coercion, but rather brotherhood and shared identity. The New Testament created a tectonic tension that would ultimately erupt in the abolition of slavery. But whilst we're not slaves or masters, these verses legitimately, I think, can be transposed into our modern day employer and employee relations. So employee, if that's you, it's me, whatever you do, work as if your soul depends on it, as for the Lord and not for humans. So all work serves Christ. All work serves Christ, unpaid or paid, even the most menial tasks are, these are in the words of one ethicist, are a royal road to dignity of the highest order. Because we're working for Christ, whatever those menial tasks are. Whatever you feel your day's doing, you're serving the Lord Christ. So that's the word to the employee, the word to the employer. Treat your employees justly and fairly, for you know that you also have a boss in heaven. The employer has obligations to those they employ as human beings. That's what Paul's getting at, not just as means of production. Christian employers are to be interested in their employees as people, generous and definitely fair and just. So drawing the threads together, uh, these, these couplets are bare-bone sketches of three significant social spheres, marriage, the family, and slavery. And though subtle, what they're doing, what these couplets are doing, are showing how Jesus radically reorders these relationships. They're embryonically revolutionary. They're planting seeds. With Jesus at the centre of marriage, of the family, of relationships of productivity, they all need to be redesigned and reconsidered and overhauled around him, like the art gallery. What these couplets do is take powerful men off the throne and place the Lord Jesus there. These passages compel obedience repeatedly in relationship to Jesus, in relation to Jesus, not in relation to husband or fathers or masters. They compel obedience in relation to Jesus. It's as if Paul's saying, live radically in relation to Jesus, the master who lives to serve, who rules with pierced hands and feet, The cosmic Christ who holds everything together, not with raw power, but shed blood. Live radically in relation to him. And when we do that, the social spheres of which Paul speaks simply can't stand as is, as much in Paul's world as our own. Reordered, these social spheres become a means through which the beauty of Jesus might shine. And that's what Paul's most concerned about. So to paraphrase Colossians 3.17, And so whatever you do in word and deed, in marriage or singleness, as a parent or a child, in your vocation, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you that 
you speak words of, of light into our lives, into even the areas of life we find hard to apply the gospel. And Father, we pray that you help us from our fullness in Jesus work out how that flows over into the way we love and serve in our marriages for Mary, the way we love and serve as parents if we're parents, and the way we work. Father, we pray that you might work in us so that everything we do is, is appropriately ordered around Jesus, so that our lives are a light that shines upon him, so that our lives are an expression of selfless love so that people have a sense that the one we serve is one who gave up his life for us. In the name of Jesus, amen.